let's go ahead and open up in a word of prayer. Um, I sense that, you know, things are kind of, as, as we've wrestled with um, some of the things that are happening in our life, I, I sense that things are just kind of solemn. And um, I want to start off with, with just a prayer uh, yet again for, for all that's going on. God, um, we just sang, great is your faithfulness, that your faithfulness is uh, consistent, it's, it's constant um, through the struggles, through trials, through, uh, through life and death situations, your, your faithfulness is, um, is, is consistent morning to morning. It never fails, it never changes, you never decide to give up on us. Uh, you're always faithful. And for that, we, we love you. So God, be faithful as, to us this morning as, as we uh, get into the Word and just encourage our hearts. Let us be able to go throughout the week living a Christ-like life despite trials and tribulations. Love you. We praise you. I pray. Amen. Well, you know... Um, what I wanted to talk about this morning is kind of enhanced by what's already happened in, in this service. And, and one of the things that, that's happened in the service is we've, we've drawn attention to just how tough life can be. We've drawn attention to um, the reality of death, uh, the, the real existential questions of, you know, what actually happens after death and what actually happens when... Um, Sickness actually takes us because we can pray and we can get healing and we can get healing and we can get healing. But one of these days, something is going to happen and you're going to cross that bridge. And what then? Right. We here as a church, we meet because we believe that we have a way out of death. We as a church meet and we have our own, our whole way of life, life based on the fact that we believe that Christ is able to take us from death to life. And so um, today is going to be kind of a grab bag of what what's been going on at youth group, my, my, my plan for uh, today has been just kind of to take you through about eight weeks of youth group lessons at a, at a supersonic speed, bird's eye view, just to show you what's been going on at these youth meetings and what we've been talking about, um, while at the same time trying to, to, to preach one unified message for today. And I hope I can do that but it's going to feel like a grab bag for a, for a little bit, just a grab bag of quotes and, and different topics and just, just, um, just, just different issues that we've addressed. But I'm going to try and keep it consistent so that you guys can, can follow along. And what we're going to see is that the Bible, the authority of the Bible, hinges, or, or, or the way that we live our life hinges on the authority of the Bible. Everything that we do here, every, every interaction that we have, every decision that we choose to make about the way that we conduct ourselves in society hinges on, do I believe, the question, do I believe that the Bible is true? 
do I believe that the scriptures are the sole source of infallible truth in, in the world? And so what, what, what we sometimes, I just can't help but think that we fail to understand is not everybody buys that. So, so you're talking to somebody on the street that you just met and you assume that maybe the Bible has at least a reverent place in their life, like they, they care about what it has to say. I mean, I'm, I'm just going to tell you that's not true anymore. People, people consider the Bible another book. And so you have to get there. You have to help them understand the most basic of things, like there is a God, like the Bible has relevance for your life, like you should care about what the scriptures say. And so there's this huge divide between where we are with our minds and where, other, where, where people are in the culture with the thoughts that they think. I mean, a lot of people will say that the human intellect and science and um, the way that we think about the world is governed by the scientific process and nothing else. The Bible has no bearing because uh, they'll say there's inconsistencies, they'll say whatever. And so... I'm assuming that starting point for some of our youth. Now, to the ones that actually do already have a foundation in the Word of God, this is going to help them be able to talk to their friends about the Word of God. For those that don't have this kind of um, understanding of the Bible, that it's, that it's the inerrant, infallible Word of God, they're going to see a play-by-play -play of at least my rationale for why the Bible is uh, God's word to humanity. So let me just take you through about eight weeks of lessons, and I promise you it sounds long. I want it to be short, um, and so so we're gonna we're gonna go and we're gonna dive in. Week one, uh, I all I did in week one was I just focused on the fact that it's okay if you're coming into youth group and you don't share all my same beliefs and assumptions about God and Jesus. This whole thing about what's after death and, and, and everything uh, surrounding these huge existential questions, like they're, they're hard. They, they're, they're things that, that people wrestle with. And so I wanted, I wanted to just say, hey, look, um, it has massive implications for the way that you live your life. So, so use this place, use youth group, use church, to learn and ask questions. And so I guess the, the, the takeaway for week one for here and, and for youth group would be, look, like if you're not convinced that, um, that a certain axiom of Christianity is true, that's not a reason to check out of here. That's not a reason to leave. That's a reason to, to, to dialogue with the intellectual heavyweights in our, in our congregation like Pastor James and see if he can actually set you straight, right? Like, like you... You, you can dialogue with people and they can help pour into you and help you understand that, um, that the Bible has significance, that the Bible has weight, right? Um, and so, so I, I think just assuming that people are going to have questions and people are going to want to talk about uh, what they believe and, and not just, well, yeah, that, this, is, this is what we've always believed. This is always how we've believed it. Like, I think that's a healthy environment so that when people bring up issues, you know, uh, that they're having, that we can have open and honest conversations about those issues. Um, and so I, in week one, just basically played this clip 
that was super scary to, to, a, to a non-believer. It was like, Christ rules all, Christ reigns all, uh, hell is real, heaven is real, this is what's at stake here. And I said, look, I'm bought into all this. It's okay if you're not. It sounds insane to some people, and that's okay. That's what this group is for, right? And so, so I just took them through. This is what this group is for. You, you get to ask questions. You get to, to not um, be afraid that I'll, that I'll beat you over the head for not agreeing with me on things. And so that was just week one. That's all we did. Week two through four, uh, I tried to establish that the Bible shows evidence of divine authorship. And so in week two, this is, this is probably one of the biggest things uh, that, that I've come away with in my, in my Bible study uh, in my entire life. Really, I mean, uh, is, is that the Bible stories um, throughout the Old and New Testament are connected. We see that in the Garden of Eden, there's a tree of life. And most scholars believe that Eden is a mountain garden. We'll get to that in a second, but just try and, just try and bear with me here. Conceptualize the Garden of Eden as a garden on a mountain and the tree of life in the center. Okay? Um, that's the first story. Second story, Noah's Ark. The Ark, made of wood, made of a tree, lands on a mountain. Okay? Third story, Isaac's sacrifice. Isaac carries wood up a mountain and sets up an altar to be sacrificed. Um, little did he know he was the one that was going to be sacrificed on it. But God spared him, right, by sending a lamb and he did not have to die because God sent a sacrifice in his place. The burning bush. So we, we know that actually the burning bush was like a mini tree on a mini hill. That, that's kind of like the idea. And from there, God commissions Moses to go and bring the Israelites into new life, new covenant with him. Okay? So, so next story. We cross. Jesus carries wood up a mountain. And from that death, new life springs. So now we have sixth story, New Jerusalem. That's on a mountain, right? And, and in, the begin, in, in the middle of the city are the, are the trees of life that when you eat of them, okay, you, you inherit eternal life. And so every single story is connected by this one thing, that the Hebrew word for tree which is eights, can, it's, it's used of wood, like the wood that's built Noah's Ark or the altar. It's used of a bush. It doesn't just mean tree. And so in all these stories, you have an eights on top of a mountain. You have a tree on top of a mountain, okay? And from this tree, from this encounter with God on this tree, some kind of life bring, springs forth. Um, you have the garden... The, the, the tree of life that sustained life in the Garden of Eden before the fall. You have the, the, the boat which preserved Noah from the flood that, that kept them alive. You have Isaac's sacrifice where God provided a lamb, beautifully prefiguring Jesus' own sacrifice uh, so that Isaac wouldn't have to die. Then you have the burning bush where God commissions a liberation of his nation to 
be brought into a new life with him. And then you have the culminations of this, the cross, the, the final sacrifice on top of the mountain, which if you don't know that the, uh, the, the mountain that Jesus was sacrificed on and the mountain that Isaac was sacrificed was on are at least next to each other. They might be the same mountain. They're in the same mountain range. And so this is evidence of divine artistic authorship. Like he is weaving together thousands of years of human history to tell the same story over and over again. He is using artistic tools like, like, like um, repetition in, in, in storytelling. He's using symbols in real life. It's incredible. And, and this kind of thing you can't do with 40 guys that don't know each other and don't even speak the same language and haven't met. This is something that's brought together and cobbled together by God himself to help you understand this story is like no other story. Okay? So that's, that's one of the biggest proofs that you can argue in the Bible is its consistent storyline. It's consistent um, set of ideas. It's, it's matrix of ideas that, that keeps hitting you over and over and over again. It's not a whole bunch of disjointed stories. It's one meta-narrative. It's one unified narrative that from, from Genesis to Revelation, it is the same story told in hundreds of stories. And so, so we, we looked at um, the evidence that the Garden of Eden was a mountain. You might say, Brad, where is the mountain in Eden? Is Eden a mountain garden for real? Like, are you serious? Are you sure? Um, according to Ezekiel 28, 13 through 14, uh, it conceptualizes Eden and the mountain of God as the same place. Also, we know ancient people conceptualized that God lives on, lived on mountains for the remoteness because humans in the ancient mind were annoying creatures that the gods wanted to get away from. Um, we know that's not true of our God, but that's what the ancients thought. Um, and then they also lived in gardens for their abundance of food. You know, if you're an ancient person, you, it's a good day if the, if this, the, the well doesn't dry up and, and, you know, and you have plenty to eat. That's, that's a good day. And so, but the gods never have to worry about that because they live in paradise. That's what an ancient person would, would, would think about something like this. Um, and so the, the word for the, the word for the tree connects um, all of these concepts together. And so I would say that if you're unsure of the, the garden as a mountain, just uh, look at all the scholarly research being done about the garden as a mountain temple. Um, it's, it's fairly new, but it's fairly robust and good research. Uh, and so, so I think, I think it's, it's helpful to think that way. Um, the third week, we, we, we went over Joseph and the life of Joseph. This is incredible. This, this is something that just absolutely um, boggles my mind when I, when I tell it. Like, like when, I, when, I, when I start to tell this to you, I'm going to get excited because it's so intense. Um, Joseph and Jesus have darn near the same story. When you consider the narrative side by side, it's just, it just looks like the same story. So let me, let me, let me show you. Let me help you. Um, 
So, so as I read this, try and think of Jesus, okay? Joseph, the special son of his father, is tasked with seeing how his brothers, the leaders of the tribes of Israel, are doing with the flock. Upon arrival, his brothers reject his presence, conspire against him, take his coat, sell him for silver. The guy that sells him his name, Judah, Judas, get it, get it, right? Okay, okay, just, just making sure. They sell him to Gentiles, and they throw him into the pit, which is the Old Testament uh, symbol for death. That's intense. That's something that doesn't just pop up in a human story that's thousands of years apart from each other. And then, when, when he gets to Egypt, right, when, when Joseph gets to Egypt, the story kind of like starts over again. Let me show you. The chief servant, Joseph, is accused of doing something he didn't do. So he takes the punishment for what Pharaoh's wife deserved, is thrown into prison, which is called a pit again. He suffers in between two criminals. Remember the cupbearer and the baker? One who dies in the prison and one who is raised up to the king. This parallels how the two criminals on either side of Jesus, although they both physically died, had different eternal fates. Joseph is then raised up to the king as well and ends up saving the nation and becoming second in command of all of, Jesus, uh, of, all of Egypt. Sound like anybody you know? This isn't coincidence. Okay? This, this is not something that people can invent. They can't if they tried, because it's separated from time and language. You can't invent this. Forty different authors trying to cobble this together? No. And so, so, so these, are, these are all proofs from, from symbolism, from prophecy, from the Old Testament and the New Testament, combining together that, that, that this, this Bible is so real, so, so, so relevant for what we have to think about today. In week four, we, we, we talked about the, uh, Naaman and salvation. We read through an interesting passage where Naaman, a foreign general's head of, is, is healed of leprosy by Israel's God, Yahweh, our God. Upon being healed, Naaman asks if he could take some dirt with him to his home country. And we learn um, by studying scripture that, that pagan people, which Naaman was, believed that gods were geographical. They, be, they believed that by taking the dirt of Yahweh and moving it over to his land, he was honoring Yahweh. Now watch, watch what happens. Um, because it, we know that that's not how Yahweh works. But instead of correcting his theology, Elijah the prophet said, go in peace. Um, Naaman actually ends up asking if he can bow at the temple uh, where, where a king worships a, a pagan god. And, and Elisha says, go in peace. Why? Because he knew that Yahweh is a God 
whose salvation is not dependent on your works, but on just your belief. When Naaman said that he would not worship other gods besides Yahweh, and he just needed to help the king bow in the temple, that was enough for Elisha. Elisha says, quite plainly, go in peace. A lot of people think that the Old Testament saints were saved by the law. They were not. They were saved by the same grace that you and I are. The Old Testament saints look forward to the cross. They look forward to the Messiah because they couldn't do it. And we look backwards to the Messiah because we couldn't save ourselves. It's the same overarching narrative. It's the same story. And this also lends credibility to the Bible. The plan of salvation throughout biblical history has been the same since Genesis. Believe God is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he's going to do. And this consistent congruent salvation requirement lends credibility to the validity of the Bible and its message. So the next, I felt like after that week, we have a good case for the Bible being something special, for the Bible being divine in authorship, in order, right? And so now we're going to tackle some objections. And so one of the big things that I grew up hearing was uh, the History Channel berating you on, on, on these books are left out and these books were supposed to be in there. And what about the Apocrypha? And what about this? And, what, and, and just adding so much confusion to an actually not really that big of a deal issue. Um, and so we went through, the, and, and I'm going to try and, and fly through these next couple weeks because uh, they're essentially just tackling objections to the claim that, that I, I feel like students are likely to hear. Um, Week five, we talked about the Gnostic Gospels, and they're hilarious. And the, the, the History Channel is stupid for telling you about them. I mean, or not telling you. It's fine to tell you about them, but don't act like they're some spooky banned book of the Bible. We talked about how late the dates of these Gnostic Gospels are. It's so easy to validate that these, these are not from actual biblical authors. These are, these are forgeries. These are copies. These are, these are false authorships. We call them pseudepigrapha in academia. Um, we actually went through the content of the Gnostic Gospels, and the content of them speaks for itself. The content is so unprecedentedly idiotic and foolish that I cannot believe people were fooled into believing these accounts are anywhere near Christ's words. Clearly, the Gnostic Gospels are attempts of authors to have their ideas gain traction within a community by slapping famous people's names on them. Examples. The Gospel of Thomas. In the Gospel of Thomas, Jesus is a boy, and Jesus walks around killing people for bumping into him and getting questions wrong. And, and I think at some point in either the Gospel of Thomas or the infancy Gospel of Thomas, Jesus fights a dragon. Ridiculous stuff. Um, he, he, he talks about to his teacher that, that they, don't, they don't know the alphabet or they don't know what the letter A means or whatever, you know, um, the Greek alpha, but it's just ridiculous. Um, At least two times in the Gnostic Gospels, it's said that women don't deserve life and that women cannot enter the kingdom of God unless they become male. 
This, this, is, this is apparently Jesus' words. And so I, I, I took them through how ridiculous these texts are and how far from the, the biblical authors they are. In the Gospel of Peter, there is a giant Jesus with his head in the clouds and a walking and talking cross. This is what it looks like when you add myth and ridiculousness to Christianity. Okay, So idiotic stuff in all these books. And its takeaway for this week was if a skeptic cites Gnostic Gospels as evidence, uh, books were left out of the Bible, it's okay to laugh at them and call them names. Just kidding. Uh, but you can disregard every opinion they have on everything. Um, week six, we learned about the Apocrypha, and this one got a little tricky for me. Um, it can be helpful. Uh, it can be a helpful set of books for establishing context when reading the normal Bible. You know, uh, we learned that Jesus actually did quote one of the books of the Apocrypha one time versus his hundreds and hundreds of citations to the actual Protestant uh, Old Testament. We learned that the Apocrypha shouldn't be feared or something that will destroy your faith if you read it. But we also learned that Jesus does not include it in his Old Testament when citing the Old Testament. We learned that there are definitive historical errors in at least one of the books. The book of Judith has Nebuchadnezzar being king of Assyria, and we know for a fact that that isn't the case. We learned that within the Apocrypha, the Apocrypha itself receives or references a completed Old Testament tradition, and that the modern Jewish Old Testament does not side with, or does, the modern Jewish Old Testament sides with our view of what Scripture is. It does not have the Apocrypha in there. Uh, Takeaway for this week, the Apocrypha isn't scary. Read it, but just understand it's not Scripture. It may help you get into the mind of an ancient Jew. Um, Week 7, the Bible interacts with other ancient material, and that's okay. A lot of people will get freaked out because they see that the Bible dialogues with other creation stories or that it, that it quotes pagan philosophers or that uh, it quotes the book of Enoch. And, and so we, 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 we talked about that. The Bible will often roast its theological opponents and make fun of them. Seriously, it, it, it theologically taunts pagan gods a lot. Many people will use this fact as a way to confuse young Christians. They will say, say things like, the Bible copies this book, or the Bible quotes uh, the Bible quotes that book. So why doesn't why isn't blank inspired? Because the Bible quotes it, so it must be inspired. And the Bible is allowed to quote things, other literature, and usually by reading and understanding the other literature that it's quoting, it can help you make sense of many passages in the Bible that are hard to understand. For example, Jude and Second Peter quote the Book of Enoch as if the book of Enoch really happened. And thus, in my interpretation journey, it has shed immense light on a passage in Genesis 6. This, the takeaway here is that the Bible wasn't written in a vacuum. It had things to say to its ancient audience. When we understand that we, when we, understand that we need to have the ancient Israelite living in our head to understand the Bible, we will be much better Bible interpreters. When you're trying to view the Bible through an ancient lens, you'll understand way more of what's going on in the text. And so the idea was, like, you can never get enough context. If somebody says, oh, the Bible dialogues with this book, say, great, I'll go read it. You know? And so, so, so this whole 
three-week series of these books were just meant to disarm some of the most commonly heard criticisms of the, the authority and the inerrancy and the infallibility of Scripture. And so what we, what we did was we, def- we, we established a divine cause for the Bible. We said, this cannot come into existence by human hands. And then we also said, look at how made of straw these commonly heard claims that you've heard made about the Bible look like are. Look, look, look how they fall when we just kind of poke them with a little bit of logic and a little bit of thoughtful reasoning. And so, so what I want to ask you is the same thing I asked them. What is your authority in your life? After we've, we've covered that information dump, that grab bag of just random information, if that's, if that's the way it felt to you, I'm sorry, but, but, the, but the main idea is the Bible is divine and there are many objections that fall apart when you just kind of poke them with a little bit of logic. And so, if the Bible is divine, then sin is sin. We have a way out of death. Our way of life is affected in dramatic ways. When the Bible says, come to church, don't forsake the gathering, probably a good idea to listen to it. When the Bible says sex is best kept in marriage, it's probably a good idea to listen to it. When the Bible says don't get drunk, it's probably a good idea to listen to it. When the Bible gives you commands, it's probably a good idea to listen to it. Now, none of us have listened all the time. All of us have sins. But that, the great thing about this logic that we've just gone through is that if the Bible's right about the things that you shouldn't and shouldn't do, or shouldn't and should do, the Bible is also right about the way that you're saved. And that's through Jesus' death on the cross. So, we have a book that gives us insight on how to cheat death on how to live a better life, on how to please God, on how to get along with people. And some of us haven't touched it in weeks, months. Learn all you can about this book. Because (laughs) your, your life hangs in the balance of the words in these pages. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for uh, giving me this message. Thank you for uh, being here with us. Uh, God, I can't do this without you. I can't do this um, in in any way, shape, or form. Um, I am but a... I'm fallible. I I can't say things that are right 100% of the time. Uh, My track record is probably a lot worse than that. But your, your word isn't. And so I pray that every single person in here leaves with like this burning desire to get to their Bible and know it more, know more about it, to understand it, to be able to dialogue with people, to be able to swat away objections like flies. Because we cannot live for you if we have 
doubt and, and disbelief lingering in our mind that, that, that you're good or that your word is true. We just can't do it. We can barely do it with, <laughs> with uh, the, these, these, the, the right thoughts in our heads sometimes. So God, I pray that you would grant us the grace to want to know the Bible more. In your name I pray. Amen.